Psalm 28. This is a psalm of David. To you I will cry, O Lord my rock. Do not be silent to me, lest if you are silent to me I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you, when I lift my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Do not take me away with the wicked and with the workers of iniquity, who speak peace to their neighbors, but evil is in their hearts. Give them according to their deeds and according to the, the wickedness of their endeavors. Give them according to the work of their hands, render to them what they deserve, because they do not regard the works of the Lord, nor the operation of his hands. He shall destroy them and not build them up. Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplications. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices, and with my song I will praise him. The Lord is their strength, and he is the saving refuge of his anointed. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Shepherd them also and bear them up forever. Uh, okay, I've read that. Now it's time to get into our sermon. So our sermon today is called is Exodus 8, 20 through 32. It's called The Plague of the Swarm. I know I said flies last week, but flies is an inserted word. It doesn't say that in the Hebrew. It is the plague of the swarm. So Exodus verse 8, starting, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 8, starting in verse 20 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms, and then inserted, of flies on you and your servants, on your people, and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they stand. And in that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. And the Lord did so. Thick swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh, into his servants' houses, and into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God in the land. And Moses said, It is not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then will they not stone us? We will go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he will command us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go, that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away. Intercede for me. Then Moses said, Indeed, I am going out from you, and I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. But let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully any more in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. My brother once told me, freedom is not congenital. It has to be taught to each subsequent generation. And if we fail to do so, it will be lost. Now, the American experiment is, I believe, all but over because we have failed to wisely handle and transmit, untainted by corruption, the lessons of our own freedoms. The same is true not only with freedoms, though, but with religion also. Nobody is born a Christian. 
The title does not transfer from parent to child automatically. There is a provision in the New Testament for children, but I'm talking about when you become a certain age. You're not just a Christian because your parents are. Instead, we must tell the next generation of the works of the Lord again and again. The stories of the plagues upon Egypt and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart are actually a part of this lesson. In this self-willed, hardened individual and the events which occur in relation to him, we can clearly see that the Lord calls, but the man must respond. The word is given, its rewards or consequences are provided, and a response is expected. Unfortunately, this is not properly taught in many churches, and people are left feeling secure in their eternal destiny when, in fact, they haven't followed through with the response part. This is seen once again in the life of Pharaoh to teach us this valuable lesson. We are to tell the great works of the Lord to our children, along with all that his work entails for us. Let us hide nothing in the process, but speak to them both of the rewards and the consequences for failure to respond to the call. All right? Our text verse today comes from Psalm 78. It's the fourth verse. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the next generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. Even more specific than this text verse, Deuteronomy tells us to keep the Lord's commands in our heart, to teach them diligently to our children, to talk of them when we sit in the house and when we walk by the way. We are to do so when we lie down and when we rise up again. They are to be so near to us that it is if they are bound on our hands and placed between our eyes, which is metaphors, meaning at all times and always to be remembered. He asks us to write the words of the Lord even on the doorposts of our house and on our gates. Again, signifying even as we come in and go out from our homes, we should have the word with us. Are you this prepared with the word of the Lord? Is it set firmly in your heart and retained in your memory? If not, make sure that from today and forevermore it will be. All right? Cherish the wondrous words that give joy, hope, and which even lead to eternal life cherish this wondrous superior word and so let's turn to that precious word once again and may god speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised i have three thoughts for you today the first is i will set apart the land of goshen is verses 20 through 24 verse 20 begins with and the lord said this said to moses rise early in the morning and stand before pharaoh as he comes out to the water this is an early morning announcement, just as we have seen in Exodus 7, verse 15. Moses is instructed to rise early. It's an indication that Pharaoh is going to the water at sunrise, probably to worship the sun god, Ra. All right? It could be then that he did this regularly or at set times of the year, like maybe a solstice or something. Either way, Moses was to be there ahead of Pharaoh, and he is instructed, Behit Yasev Lifne Pharaoh and stand in the face of Pharaoh. The imagery is him standing between the water and Pharaoh, probably with the sun at his back, as if challenging this sun god. There, illumined by the splendor of the sun around him, Moses would make the same demand he has already made three times, which is, let my people go. And again, he explains the reason for this demand. Verse 20 goes on, Then say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. With just a minor change in the Hebrew, which is dropping an accusative, this is an exact repeat of Exodus 8, verse 1. The Lord's name, Jehovah, is declared. The people are identified as his people. 
and he desires their service of him. It is the words of the God who has already proven himself a competent adversary. However, to this point, Pharaoh has had his heart increasingly hardened as the plagues have become even more troublesome. With the passing of each plague, it appears to Pharaoh he believes that the Lord's arsenal is depleted, and so he continues his belligerent stance. Verse 21, Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies. Another plague is announced in advance if Israel is not released for the service of Jehovah. The actual identity of this plague cannot be determined with certainty. In Hebrew, the term is he-arov, the swarm. The words of flies at the end of that verse are inserted by the translators. Jewish commentators tie this word arov in with the word erev, which means mingled or mixed, and thus they identify this plague as a variety of beasts, reptiles, insects, and the like, all coming at Pharaoh at one time. However, the term he-erov is used in the singular throughout the entire plague, and so it is one species, it's not many. The Greek translation of the Old Testament identifies this with the dogfly. However, scholars have noted that the dogfly is not a pest in houses, and it doesn't damage the land, both of which are noted in this plague. However, there is a certain type of beetle which does fit the description by harming both man and beast and the land itself. If it is what is described here, it would certainly be another terrible plague, not only because of the great nuisance that they made, but because the beetle was considered sacred in Egypt. The beetle was tied to their god Kefri, the god of rebirth, the sunrise, and the scarab. Kefri was Ra's aspect in the morning, and thus it is a very fitting possibility as Moses has come to encounter Pharaoh in the morning. Therefore, like the frog, the people would refrain from killing one of their little deities, and thus they would be all the more overrun. They apparently have been known to suddenly appear upon the Nile, so it's not an unheard of thing. They've not only appeared, but appeared in immense numbers. And according to the Bible scholar Kalish, they inflict very painful bites with their jaws. They gnaw and destroy clothes, household furniture, leather, and articles of every kind, and either consume or render unavailable all eatables. Another commentator notes that they sometimes drive persons out of their houses, and they also devastate fields. It is a seemingly likely choice for the description of the swarm which was to come upon the land. Therefore, this is a challenge against the Egyptian gods of Ra and Kefri. Verse 21 goes on, and on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. Now in verse 21, four distinctions are made. It might seem curious that it's worded this way instead of simply saying that they would cover everyone and everything. But each distinction is calculated to give special effect. He first notes you, meaning Pharaoh. It is Pharaoh who has denied Jehovah in the past, setting himself directly against him. Therefore, he is specifically mentioned. He next notes, and your servants. It is the noun form, ebed, of the verb abad, meaning to serve, which was used in just the previous verse. If Israel may not serve the Lord, the servants of Pharaoh will suffer. Next, he says, on your people. Once again, it's the same word used in the previous verse connecting with the people of Israel, my people. If my people may not serve me as their God, your people will suffer by one of your false gods. And it finally notes, into your houses. 
if I, the great and awesome God, may not have the joy of open and personal fellowship with my people, you will suffer a private and most personal fellowship with your little biting gods. Verse 21 continues. The houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on the earth which they stand. The infestation will permeate the dwelling places of the Egyptians, biting and nauseating the people, turning their hearts away from the little devils that you so worship. The swarm will be everywhere they go and they will cover the ground on which they stand. And in this, where it says the ground, it may be a subtle play on the creation account itself. The word for ground here is the word Adama which is essentially the same word as Adam or man. Adam was shaped and formed from the Adama, and he is intricately tied to it. Rising from it, he walks upon it, he eats what comes from it, and he returns to it. The very ground from which man came will be so covered with the swarm that he will learn to loathe it. But something new is specifically stated concerning this plague, which has never been stated before. Verse 22, and in that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there. When the plague comes in that day, the Lord promises to set apart the land. The term in Hebrew is vehifleti. It is the first of seven uses of the word pala in the Bible. It means to set apart, but the word also means wonderfully or wondrously. And because of this, the Latin Vulgate translation says, I will do a marvelous thing. The Greek translation says, I will render illustrious the land of Goshen. It is the same word which is used by David when he wrote these memorable words. He says, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully, that word there, pala, wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. The part of the land which is so distinguished in this way is Goshen, the residence of the Hebrews. This area called Goshen here is mentioned only 10 times in the entire Bible. Eight were in the Genesis stories that we went through, and two of them are in Exodus. It means drawing near or approaching. In the Genesis sermons, it became apparent. We were very, very well uh, trained on the fact that the name was given to show a picture of the coming tribulation period on the earth, which is pictured by the plagues on Egypt. Now that time has come and the distinction between the Hebrews and the Egyptians is seen explicitly for the very first time. Thus, it pictures the Jews of the tribulation period of the future who will take Jesus' advice, which he says in Matthew chapter 24, to flee into the wilderness at the time of the great tribulation because it's drawing near. The patterns are beautifully represented in the use of individual words and names which appear at perfectly timed intervals. It is more than likely that Israel was spared from one or more of the other plagues, the previous three, but the introduction of the name Goshen and its being separated from the plagues to come highlights the future events of the end time tribulation period perfectly. It should be remembered now that at the end of the previous plague, the magician said, this is the finger of God. If you remember that, they used a general term for God there, Elohim, which can mean gods or it can mean a God or any God. They did not give specific credit to Jehovah or to the God of the Hebrews. And because of this, the special distinction is now being made to show that this is not just a God, but it is Israel's God. And more poignantly, he will next make an even more specific claim. Verse 22 going on, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. 
Yehovah isn't just a God over there somewhere looking for the service of an individual group of people, nor does he sit upon one parcel of land. Rather, he is Yehovah Bekerev Haaretz, Yehovah in the midst of the earth. He is the Lord of the whole earth. Just as a king is said to rule and reside from the midst of his kingdom in order to conveniently rule and guide his people, Yehovah rules in the midst of the earth and in the midst of the people of the earth. Thus, he is the only true sovereign. Verse 23, I will make a difference between my people and your people. Here comes another special note to Pharaoh. It says, Veshamti pedut. The word translated here as difference is used only four times in the entire Bible, and it means more properly to redeem. The Lord is making a distinction by redeeming. His people will be redeemed from the plague which falls on all other people. The same word is used in Isaiah chapter 50 to show us that he is fully capable of speaking his word and then fulfilling his word. Here's what he says. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? That word there. Or have I no power to deliver? Indeed, with my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink because there is no water and I die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their covering. Verse 23 goes on. Tomorrow this sign shall be. In order to fully demonstrate that this is the work of the Lord, not only has it been shown in advance that Israel would be exempted from the plague to come, but that it would come at a specified time. There will be little time to prepare because it is coming on the morrow. The timing is given and it is called a sign. It's the same word we've seen in the past in some of our sermons. It's the word oath. It is generally used to indicate a sign of something else, one thing pointing to another. Thus, this sign is given to show both the omniscience and the omnipotence of the Lord. He sits in the midst of the earth and he controls what occurs there, but he also sits in the midst of time and he controls when things will occur. Thus, the sign is given to demonstrate this. Verse 24, and the Lord did so. Thick swarms, once again, the word of flies is inserted there. Thick swarms came into the house of Pharaoh, into his servants' houses, and into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted because of the swarms. I'm leaving off the word of flies there. No record of the staff being stretched out like the commencement of the other plagues is mentioned. Rather, the word was spoken, and the plague began because of the word. Therefore, the magicians could not claim that it was some type of a magician's trick. Rather, by the mere word of an unseen power, the land would come alive with this swarm. And the swarm performed exactly as the word spoke. It covered everything from the houses of Pharaoh and his servants, even to all of Egypt. And it is said that the land was corrupted because of the swarm. This word corrupted more exactly means destroyed. The swarm, be it beetle, be it fly, or some other pest, devoured up every single thing in its path and brought calamity wherever it went. The increasing severity of the plagues is seen most notably right here in this plague. The first three plagues were certainly annoying, but they didn't actually cause damage or injury to the people or to the land. But this one has caused harm to both. Step by step, the Lord is bringing his judgment upon Egypt and its gods, while at the same time progressively hardening the already obstinate heart of Pharaoh. Another plague is coming unless you pay heed. A request is made and an answer is expected. The plague will come soon and it will come with speed. 
Is there a note of defiance in your voice that I've detected? Pharaoh, you are continuing to bring this evil upon yourself by not heeding the Lord who makes this request of you. Take your pride, fold it up, and put it on a shelf. Pharaoh, this is what I recommend you do. Now the plague which you assumed wouldn't come is here, and frightful it is for you, tee-hee. What? No, I didn't chuckle. This is going to get worse for you, I fear, because of your raised fist. I can see the hair on every knuckle. Our second thought today is intercede for me, which is verses 25 through 28. Verse 25, then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, go, sacrifice to your God in the land. This is the second time that Pharaoh has now conceded to the judgments he's faced. The first was during the plague of frogs when he said, entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. After that, when he saw there was relief, what did he do? He hardened his heart and he changed his mind. Now he again tells them that they may go, but he only gives in to what they requested this time, not what they had originally asked for. The original request was that they go into the wilderness for a three-day journey. Overlooking that, Pharaoh grants them to sacrifice to your God in the land. As an indication of the already hardened heart of Pharaoh, we can read those words once again. Sacrifice to your God. He is granted that Jehovah is a God, but not the God. To him, he is only Israel's God. Further, rather than identifying by his name, saying Jehovah, he only identifies himself by his otherness, by using the word Elohim. Verse 26, And Moses said, It is not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. This explains what was previously left unexplained. In chapter 5, a three-day journey was uh, requested to go into the wilderness, but the explanation for this was not given. Now it's being relayed to Pharaoh. The request was not unfounded, but he simply didn't care about the reason at the time, and so he didn't bother asking why. Now, though, the explanation is rendered, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians. It is improbable that the Israelites had not sacrificed to the Lord in small groups, like if they had weddings or funerals or something. Further, as shepherds, they would have been meat eaters. However, this would not have been done in an open way just as it isn't done by them today. Rather, they would have prepared the animals in markets or in shops. But what is being requested here is on a wholly different level. An entire group of people would be offering public open sacrifices to God. This would be right in the face of the Egyptians and a true affront to them. Today, with open media, the sacrifices of the Jews and other groups are coming under greater scrutiny once again. The world, especially the radical left, vegans, animal right activists and all those other nut jobs are working to get animal sacrifices stopped altogether. These Hebrews were looking to offer animals considered sacred to the Egyptians in a public display of worship. It would be in essence equivalent to killing Egypt's God for the pleasure of Israel's God. It would be an all out affront on the Egyptian society. Verse 26 goes on, if we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then will they not stone us? If they were to openly and publicly sacrifice a cow, which represented their god Isis, it would be beyond the pale. These and other animals were deified by the Egyptians, and only catastrophe could result. Ellicott notes that later in Egyptian history, on one occasion, a Roman ambassador who had accidentally killed a cat, which was deified in Egypt, was torn to pieces by the populace. 
The request by the Lord was intended to honor him while maintaining peace within the greater Egyptian society. The risk of conflict was not without reasonable basis. And Moses indicates what the result would be in the words, will they not stone us? It is the very first mention of stoning in the Bible or guess what, anywhere in all of recorded history. Whether it was an accepted form of punishment in Egypt or anywhere else on earth at this time was not known. But it is an easy and obvious way of venting one's anger. And it's still a common outrage which is levied against the people of Israel 3,500 years later. The Muslims living in the land of Israel frequently stone the Jews. They stone their vehicles. They stone their trains. They stone their homes. They stone their offices. And the first mention of this practice is right here in Exodus 8, verse 26. Verse 27, we will go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God. Now with the explanation fully revealed for the original request, it is repeated as a statement of certainty for Pharaoh. What he ignored in the past is now made very clear to him, and it is spoken with implicit intent behind the words. Now you know, now we will. Verse 27 goes on, as he will command us. This indicates to Pharaoh that they had not been informed exactly what was entailed in the sacrifice and the feast which is to be held. Rather, they had been instructed, and they were simply attempting to be obedient to the calling. It more poignantly shows the trouble that they could be in with the Egyptians, because whatever mode and means of worship was requested by Jehovah wasn't known. And so it could be more than just sacrificing animals that could upset the Egyptians. This is also another anticipatory statement, which is going to be explained later in the book of Exodus. In Exodus 10, it'll say this, Our livestock also shall go with us, not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take some of them to serve the Lord our God, and even we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. Like before, if Pharaoh asked now what they meant, he would understand the whole picture, but he doesn't. It shows a continued arrogance and a simplicity of his mind that will persist in leading him to more hardening of the heart and more trouble to come. Verse 28, So Pharaoh said, I will let you go, that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you shall not go very far away. Pharaoh again grants release, even with the condition of going into the wilderness, but it is to be inferred that he means still within the realm of the Egyptian rule. Instead of agreeing to a three-day journey, he agrees with a very unspecified, not very far away. He has now for the very first time shown what his true opposition to this request is. If they go, they may never come back. They could easily continue on towards Canaan and refuse to return. Rather than refuse the words of Pharaoh, Moses remains quiet, though. This is probably because he already knows the outcome of the matter. Pharaoh will get relief, and he will again harden his heart. Moses was already told way back at the burning bush that the firstborn son is to be threatened in exchange for the release of Israel, and that has not yet occurred. Instead, Pharaoh has niggled over minutia, and Moses has remained silent. As the Geneva Bible evaluates this verse, listen to their insightful analysis. So the wicked instruct God's messengers how far they can go. It's like the increasing attacks of the government upon Christian pastors, isn't it? You can say this, but no more. First, they silence them on politics in exchange for their obedience to the dollar. We saw that in the 1960s. 
Next, they silence them on moral issues in exchange for their freedom. And that's being argued this week in the Supreme Court of the United States of America. And soon, they will demand silence on the principal tenets of their faith in exchange for their lives. That's coming soon to a tribulation period near you. Each step brings the people of God closer to a final confrontation. And we're seeing the exact same pattern way back here in the book of Exodus. Verse 28 continues, intercede for me. In verse 8, during the height of the plague of the frogs, Pharaoh said, entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. Now, an abbreviated form of that long plea is given. He simply says, hatiru ba'adi, pray for me. All the rest of the words can be inserted by us, so let's do it. Oh man, this swarm is horrifying. I can't stand it anymore, and I will let you go sacrifice to the Lord. Let's just get this plague ended. Intercede with the Lord for me. There you go. This plague is horrifying. Yes, it is true. Please make it end, and I will do as you say. I will let Israel go sacrifice in the land. This I will do. Just get rid of this swarm as to you I now pray. It shall be done if a three days journey is granted. The plague will end and all again will be good. What was destroyed can again be planted now that the agreement is made and things are understood. But Pharaoh, don't make the same mistake you made before. Don't harden your heart and from the Lord turn away. Surely worse things will come as he plagues you some more if you are unwilling to fulfill the words that you did say. Our third thought, but Pharaoh hardened his heart. Verses 29 through 32. Verse 29, then Moses said, indeed, I am going out from you and I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. In agreement to the conditions while leaving the vague words of Pharaoh for the Israelites to not go very far away, left alone, he promises that he will, in fact, entreat the Lord for the plague to end. This time, rather than asking Pharaoh when the plague should end, he simply follows with the same time frame as the ending of the plague of frogs, which is tomorrow. The relief would come, it would be soon, and it would be complete. The swarm would depart from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people. However, the granting is conditioned upon allowing the worshiping of Jehovah through sacrifice by his servants and by his people. The contrast is evident, though unstated at this time. The distinction is made between the people of God and the people who are not of God, right? So it will be at the rapture of the church. And so it will be in the end times during the tribulation period. There are spiritual separations which exist and the boundaries between them are known to and they are closely monitored by the Lord. Verse 29 goes on, but let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully anymore in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. In the closing words of the conversation, Moses rebukes Pharaoh for his conduct, which was noted in verses 8 through 15. Pharaoh agreed to let Israel go, but in his agreement, he dealt deceitfully. The word used here is hatal, and it means properly to mock. It's not just deceitfully, it's mocking. His change of heart is equated to mockingly deceiving the Lord. And it's an evident trait in anyone who fears the true God only as long as his effects are felt in a negative way. There's no true love or caring for him or for his people. Rather, there's this purposeful mocking attitude deep in the heart, which comes forth like blooming flowers in the spring. They're evident, they're showy, and they fade just as quickly as the next time of deprivation or hardship arises. 
In order to keep him from such an attitude, Moses makes the effort to remind him of his past transgressions in hopes of it not turning into another one. As Ellicott notes, he says, God's servants must rebuke even kings when they openly break the moral law. And every once in a while, some faithful guy sitting in a prayer breakfast with our current president will do exactly that. He'll rebuke him implicitly or explicitly that you are not heeding the word of the Lord. And that's what sometimes we as servants of the Lord must do. How few are willing to do it though, but how important it is, especially in this world where the spirit of Pharaoh is growing almost exponentially as the days pass. Verse 30, so Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. In accord with the request of Pharaoh, and even before the people have assembled to depart for their sacrifice in the wilderness, Moses upholds his part of the bargain. And this takes us right back to verses 12 and 13, where the same basic thing happened. Although we could throw the old adage at Moses, which is fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. He is willing to follow the preset plan of the Lord so that his signs and his wonders might be multiplied. The Lord's representative thus petitions him on behalf of Pharaoh. Verse 31, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. Again, as before, the Lord heard Moses and defended both the integrity of his own name and that of Moses before Pharaoh. For a second time, the petition comes less for mercy on Pharaoh than it is made for the glory of the Lord to be revealed and the honor of the Lord to be maintained. The removal of the plague is as remarkable as the initiation of it. The plague was everywhere. It was unstoppable by any known means, and yet it was ended in all places completely and at a specified time. Another victory over more false gods of Egypt. Again, as before, the surpassing greatness of the Lord is seen in the ending of this terrible plague upon Pharaoh and in the land of Pharaoh. The swarms departed exactly as promised. When the word is spoken, the word never fails. But the same is not true with the word of man. It is a rare, rare trait that a man can be known for the truth of the words he utters. Normally something more certain than the breath out of his mouth is required to ensure that the words are followed up with deeds. And the reason is that it goes all the way through human history. Men have made promises and those promises have been broken. From the desperate gambler who's looking to pay off his debts and promise never to gamble again, to the great Pharaoh in Egypt who begged for the removal of the plagues, promising relief to his enslaved Hebrews, the words prove false and the actions of the heart are recorded in God's scroll of memory for future judgment. Verse 32, our final verse of the day, but Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also, neither would he let the people go. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart is so important that it has been, been mentioned continuously and meticulously by the Lord. It is not an arbitrary side issue, but it is at the very core of biblical doctrine. We are being taught about the nature of God in relation to man and the nature of man in the presence of God. And yet, we as Christians will follow misguided presuppositions about what is occurring rather than pay heed to what the Lord is trying to tell us. The Lord is directing us with his actions towards us, but he is also leaving the final decision of how we relate to him and how we perceive him completely up to us. And because of this, when we stand before him, we will only have ourselves to blame in how we responded to him 
and how we instructed others about his nature. The goodness of God cannot be on trial here because Pharaoh was given advanced warning of what would come about. He was given time to reflect on that bad decision. And then he was granted the grace of being relieved of what had been brought upon him. The Lord could have, you know, allowed the plague to go on forever. He could have made the plague worse, or he could have added in another plague on top of the one that he was experiencing. Instead, he ended it. And yet, once again, the Bible tells us that Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also. It was a volitional act of his free will, and it is recorded for us to read and to assimilate into our minds. He has given us his word. He has told us what he expects, and he has shown us the consequences of our disobedient hearts. We cannot blame God if we go out and have illicit sex and get AIDS or syphilis. He's told us not to do that. He's told us how to conduct our lives from a moral standpoint. We can't blame God when a loved one dies, when he's already shown every person on earth that we are destined to die and that he alone is the decider of when that will occur. We cannot say five minutes after the rapture, it's not fair, I wasn't ready. And we cannot stand before him at the judgment and say, the preacher told me that I was predestined to salvation, and so I assumed that that was true. Instead, we have to call to him for healing, and we have to actively participate in his plan of salvation. The span of our lives is unknown except to the one who gave us that life. When the final moment comes for you, will he say, this one hardened his heart and he would not yield to my call? Or will he be pleased with how you responded to his goodness in creation, in family, in blessings, and in the gift of his son, Jesus Christ? It's up to you. It's up to each one of you. Choose wisely and be sure to choose today. The Bible promises us no tomorrows. Let me tell you what you need to know so that you will stand approved before him when he comes for you. The Bible shows us that we have a separation between God and man, and that separation is sin. He's infinite and perfect, and we're finite and we're fallen, and there cannot be fellowship between two that are in such states. And so he sent his son into the world to remedy that. God himself united with human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, and he lived that perfect life that we can't live. There's no sin in him. And after living that perfect life, that sinless life, he gave it up on the cross of Calvary in exchange for our sins. And his resurrection proved it. He came out of the grave proving that he had no sins because the wages of sin is death. He had no sin. And if we put our trust in him, then God says it is a satisfactory substitution. I will accept the punishment of this in place of this. You go to court and you've got a traffic ticket you can't pay. Somebody else can pay it for you. That's what God has allowed in the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. But you must receive it. You must say, I receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And if you do, he will forgive you. Your debt will be cleared away and you will be granted eternal life. And someday he will come for us and he will take us to the most glorious place that we could even imagine, more than we could ever imagine, because we will see the beauty of the Lord in its fullness. Every desire that we have, everything that we've ever wanted came from him. And therefore, if he's the source of those things, how much greater and glorious is he? We're going to be eternally satisfied looking at his beauty. Don't miss out on that train, all right? Our closing verse comes from Psalm 46. It's the 10th verse. Be still and know that I am God. 
I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Next week is Exodus 9. It's verses 1 through 12. It sounds like many trials and many toils. It's the plagues of livestock and of boils. Okay, two plagues in one sermon. Can we do it? Can we fit it all in? I think we can. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part those waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right. I have a poem today called The Swarming Plague. And the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. There you shall give him my warning. Then say to him, thus says the Lord plainly, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people as you are told. And into your houses, the swarm will go too. The houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. Pay heed, be wise. And in that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there. Pay attention to the words which I do now tell in order that you may know and understand that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this shall be seen. And the Lord did so. Thick swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh, into his servants' houses they did go, and into all the land of Egypt. What an amazing show. The land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. The immensity of what was coming Pharaoh didn't realize. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron, we understand, and said, go, sacrifice to your God in the land. And Moses said, it is not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God, as you know, we can't sacrifice inside Egypt the nation. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then will they not stone us until every Hebrew dies? We will go three days journey thus into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God, as he will command us. The removal of the plague demands this price. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go, that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God. In the wilderness, even so, only you shall not go very far away as you trod. Intercede for me. This plague is horrifying, as you can see. Then Moses said, indeed, I am going out from you. Here I go, and I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh from his servants and from his people, according to the word. But let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully anymore, making it twice and not letting the people go and to the Lord make sacrifice. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord and the Lord did to Moses uh, according to Moses' spoken word. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from the people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go, but instead them he detained. A hard heart inside a man is a fearful thing. It will lead him down a path towards great loss. In the end, only immense sorrow it will bring, especially when that heart is hard towards Jesus' cross. God gives us every warning in advance to beware. He provides guidance for the path as a lamp so bright. If we heed his word, reading it daily, we will find there life and healing in the most radiant light. It is given as a guide and a rule for our life to lead us across the Jordan to the heavenly shore. Read it now, accept its words, and end all your strife. Come to Jesus and be reconciled to God forevermore. He's reaching out, nail-scarred hands offering peace. Receive the gift, bow the knee, and let the enmity cease. 
together with the saints of God, we shall our mighty Lord praise there in his majestic presence for innumerable eternal days. Hallelujah and amen. Oh, Heavenly Father, ah, I suppose every one of us here has a hard heart at one time or another towards you and Sometimes they get a little harder and we just get rebellious against your word or against what we know we should do, whether it's a family relationship or whether it's going to our job or above all, just taking the time to come to church and to worship you and to, to share in your goodness. We just love to fight against you. And I would ask that you would soften our hearts, especially to the things of your word. Help us to be obedient to it. Help us to pursue it, to read it, to cherish it, to love it, to tell about it to write it on our doorposts and on our gates and to speak of it to our family as we lie down and as we get up and as we walk along the road, as we do our jobs, thinking about you. Just help us to do this and not to be hard-hearted, but to be soft towards you. We know you're there. We just love to ignore you most of the time, though. Help us not to be that we just call on you when things are tough, but to remember you when things are going well to thank you for every pretty flower, every beautiful sunrise, and every good thing you give us. You're worthy of all that and so, so much more. Help us as a congregation as well to honor you, to be friendly with each other, to be worshipful of you and respectful of your holy name. Lord, thank you for all you've done for us. We pray for uh, safe travels for those who are traveling in the next uh, week that we won't see anymore this summer. We ask that you just take good care of them. We love you. We thank you for all you've done for us, great and glorious God. Thank you for our Lord Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, we get the uh, words for the Lord's Supper directly from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I add in just a couple of blessings in Hebrew. Other than that, it's right out of the Bible, where Paul writes these words. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And he would have given thanks over that bread with these words. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it and he said, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body.
the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for what this represents. The wonderful, wonderful gift. The child who was born, the man who lived, the Savior who died. Thank you, Lord God. We love you. Amen.